Holy cow, what a great podcast for you today. Uh, in hour number one, I just take apart the um, CNN incredible uh, opinion, or they called it news, uh, that America's churches have just become white nationalist churches. Um, it's part two of that. I take it down in epic form based all on the facts. And you can get all those facts at glenbeck.com. There's also a story that I think you can get on this with all the footnotes, all of the footnotes. Um, you can nine pages of footnotes. Uh, you can get that at blazed, uh, the blaze.com, or you can get it at glenbeck.com and sign up for our free uh, newsletter. Uh, also, we have Bill O'Reilly on today. We have Jack Carr, who talks about some amazing things and shoots straight. Jack Carr, if you don't know, he is the uh, thriller author, uh, and he wrote The Terminalist, the, the, uh, the, the series that is on now uh, on Amazon.com. And Carol Roth talks about the economy. We've got it all today. You don't want to miss a second of today's podcast brought to you by Relief Factor. If you're one of the millions of Americans for every day from pain, I want you to listen up. There is hope and it comes from Relief Factor. Relief Factor is really, truly this amazing um, product that is not a drug. It works four different ways to reduce the inflammation in your body. And that's where most of our pain comes from. And you should be enjoying life much more than you are right now. And I hear from people every single day about them trying out Relief Factor and their life changing. Your life, you can get it back. Get out of pain. ReliefFactor.com. That's ReliefFactor.com. You're listening to... The best of the Glenn Beck program. Thank you. From the hymnals. Now, everybody, sing along. Send us thine asteroid, O Lord. Send us thine asteroid.
And now, from the scriptures according to Glenn, I want to share with you, if I might, what CNN is saying. But CNN is saying that we are just a white Christian America looking White Christian uh, nationalist movement members looking to get rid of anyone of any other color. Again, Lord, send down your sacred asteroid to destroy us all. Uh, They went on yesterday, and we explained all of this. The uh, article said there are three key beliefs associated with the white Christian nationalists. And belief number one was a belief that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. It took us an hour to debunk that yesterday, and they're still looking into it. They're like, there's so much information here, I don't know what to do with it. But let's move on. The Constitution, they say in the article, says nothing about God, the Bible, or the Ten Commandments. Amen! And saying the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation ignores the fact that much of its initial wealth was derived from slave labor and land stolen from the Native Americans. All right, so let's just get these uh, things down here. It was Christian America that brought oppression. Got it. America's wealth was derived by slave labor. Okay. And America's land was stolen from the Native Americans. Well, if I may, in no way, in no way does being a Christian nation imply that proponents of such of you reject or ignore the sins of America's past. We were sinners. We are currently even bigger sinners. What we actually want is a historical Christian America to be more acutely aware of the failures. And throughout our history, it has been Christian ministers, pastors, and leaders with a correct understanding of the scriptures at the forefront of fighting against such failures and shortcomings. So let's take them one by one. First, Christian America brought oppression. Well, not really. Uh, Do you know about the witch trials over in Europe? Yeah, lasted decades and decades and decades. Here, it was stopped. And it only lasted about 18 months. Why is that? A Christian minister, yes, pointed out, hey, you're reading the Bible incorrectly. And then increased Mather, he was instrumental in stopping the Salem witch trials. He's like, I don't think we should use any of this magic stuff. Maybe we should go back and look at, you know, uh, in the, uh, uh, there has to be a witness, a three or more, and you have to have actual facts and evidence. You know, like the Bible says, Ministers and religious leaders also led the charge against slavery. They were using in the South, they were, they were using the Bible to say we can have slaves. Yes, an incorrect understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are many examples. So let's go to the second claim. America's wealth was de- derived from slave labor. Yes, that's right. You know who used to say that a lot? Our great, fine, fine president, old Jefferson Davis. Yeah, old Jeff used to say that all the time. America's wealth is derived from slave labor. We can't have an America without slavery. Unfortunately, 
That's not true. <laughs> Jeff Davis. Go, 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 go. I think you might have been drinking. The contention that slavery constituted a major source of wealth during the founding of America is entirely erroneous and a little more than a gross regurgitation of old pro-slavery Confederate propaganda. The importation of slaves in North America did not become substantial until more than a century after its initial founding. No more than 5,000 slaves were disembarked in any year until 1727. When it began to substantially increase, it was well after the Christian founding. By the way, does anybody know that if New England would have been considered a country and not England, New England would have been considered um, the first country in the world 50 years ahead of everybody else of abolishing slavery. Yeah, New England did that. Abolished slavery 50 years before anyone else. Did anybody know that our pilgrims actually, because of a storm, had a slave ship wash up upon their store, their shores? But the Bible calls that to man-stealing. And when they boarded the ship and realized that it was a slave ship, they arrested the captain and the crew. Then they took a, a, a collection. I'm passing around the collection plate. Give until it hurts, pilgrims. And they did. And you know what they used that money for? Ha! It's crazy. They used that money to uh, gain the passage on that ship with a new crew back to Africa. Ha, huh, that's weird. Significantly, slavery impoverished the areas which practiced it in comparison to those parts of the country which did not. Let me give you Alex de Tocqueville. He noted that the colonies in which there was no slaves became more populous and more prosperous than those in which slavery flourished. De Tocqueville's uh, observations are confirmed by the facts of economic history. But why care about that? We're, we're so busy redefining history and economics, I don't think we're actually in a recession. The story of the South is one of stagnation and increasingly falling behind the rest of the nation. Aside from the few owners of large plantations, the people of the South were generally more impoverished than the people in the North. At the time of the Revolutionary War, the South had been the wealthier region by far, but their reliance upon slavery sapped the strength out of the region. As economic historians from Harvard and UC Davis explained when they were sane, from 1774 and 1860, the per annum growth rates for New England, 1.26%, the Middle Atlantic, 1.08%, and the South's 0.31%. Hmm. By 1860, the real product per capita in the South was 40 points behind New England. A Harvard economic study identified that even today there exists a significant negative relationship between past slave use and current economic performance. In fact, all forms of slavery were detrimental to economic development. But CNN, why take it from Harvard? You know... As uh, early as 1793, major fi figures such as Nora Webster pointed out, in no particular, um, in no particular, 
uh, are the deplorable effects of slavery more visible than in checking the destroying of national industry and productivity? Wherever we turn our eyes to view the comparative effects of freedom and slavery on agriculture, arts, commerce, science, the mind is deeply affected at the astonishing contrast. To labor solely for the benefit of other men is repugnant to every principle of the human heart. Third, and I love this one, America's land was stolen from the Native Americans. Ministers and religious communities were at the forefront in treating Native tribes with respect and honoring land deals. Yes, CNN, it's true. The religious pilgrims strictly only occupied land lawfully purchased. This land was bought at a price agreed upon by the native tribes in founding Plymouth in 1620. At the start of King Philip's War in 1675, Plymouth Governor Joshua Winslow explained, I think I can clearly say that before these present troubles broke out, the English did not possess one foot of land in this colony that was uh, that was. Uh, not fairly obtained by honest purchase of the Indian proprietors. Reverend uh, Roger Williams lawfully purchased the land at a price agreed upon by the native tribes in order to found uh, Rhode Island in 1636. Reverend John Davenport lawfully purchased the land at a price agreed upon by the native tribes in order to found New Haven in 1637. In founding Pennsylvania, and this is an incredible stat I, ne- I had never heard before, William Penn, as in Pennsylvania, purchased the land from the Indians. But there was a problem. When they purchased the land from one tribe, the other tribe said, well, but they stole it from us. We're the actual owners. And so he purchased it again from a second tribe and then a third tribe came in and said yeah but they stole it from us parts of pennsylvania william penn bought three separate times just to make sure he had secured a clear title from each tribe that claimed it had been stolen from them by another indian tribe Remember the uh, 1888 wall map of Jamestown versus the Pilgrims? I showed this to you on a couple of TV shows, and I've talked about it on radio. Um, Throughout the Northeast and most of early America, the land was purchased by the colonists. In the South, it was different. But because the land was bought, the longest lasting treaty in American history between whites and Indians was the treaty between the Pilgrims and the Indians. And who broke that treaty? Yes, yes, the Indians. If you look at that map I showed you, it shows Jamestown is was founded on slavery. It becomes an absolute nightmare and everything goes sour from there. This is the same argument that we had before the Civil War. Were we a country fa- founded in slavery with Jamestown? Or are we a Christian nation that come from the pilgrims that tried to do the things right? Well, guess which one I think we are and guess which one I think we should be. White Christian nationalist, they say, CNN, belief number two, a belief in a warrior Christ. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. 
let me go to Michael Malice, who I think Abraham Lincoln saw uh, coming long, long time ago with Malice Toward None. And uh, that makes me a little nervous that he's on the program, but I like him anyway. He is the uh, host of You're Welcome, a great podcast, the author of the Anarchist Handbook, Michael Malice. Welcome, Michael. How are you? Well, Abraham Lincoln wasn't really good at seeing things coming, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my. Too soon? Too soon? Um, so, Michael, I just wanted to get your quick comments on, uh, just want to get your quick comments on, uh, on what happened recently. Uh, Filipinos are quite, quite upset because uh, some woke progressives have decided to change Filipino. Uh, it's much better to call them Philippinks. And uh, apparently they don't like they don't like that that much. Uh, well, are, are we sh- are we sure you're pronouncing it correctly? I mean, I don't speak Tagalog, so I'm not sure. You know how because Lat- I was corrected. It's not Latinx. I think it's Latinx. Um, but this it is, is really a white people. This is a white people thing. This is white people going yes, to college, yes. and then people who are you know uh, Asian Pacific ancestry going to college and acting like white people. This is. Uh, right. Uh, nonsensical. It's um, it's and it's also there was this attempt to create this AAPL Asian American Pacific. I don't know what the L stands for coalition where you had people like uh, Tammy Duckworth, who I believe is of um, Asian descent, and basically have this lie that Chinese and Japanese and people from India and people from the Philippines and Laos, they're all interchangeable. and They should all vote and uh, you know, act the same, right. even though for, for millennia, right. they've been at war. And to this day, many of these countries despise each other. You know, I was, for, I used to live in Brooklyn until I escaped last August. And I was at a dinner party a few years ago and it turned out everyone was from a different country, their families. So me being me, we went mm. around the table and said, who did our ancestors hate? And someone said, well, we didn't hate anyone. <laughs> and I said, well, well, who were your neighbors? Come on. No, no. I said, who are your neighbors? And she goes, oh, we didn't hate them. We just thought they were dumb. So, but this is just, a complete, <laughs> but this is a complete American university fantasy that people no, I know. based on geography are somehow can be, even look at America itself. You had the North and the South. They were neighbors. They try to kill each other. So it's, it's really, yeah. uh, we have to laugh, but it's a very cynical and disingenuous attempt to have this kind of intersectionality, and, uh, which is just and, and quite frankly, it is the it's the most racist thing as well. I mean, when when you have a because it is it's a group of white people who think they know better and they can be the defenders and say, you know, Filipino is racist. <laughs> the Filipinos are like, what? You're going to be called Philippinks from here on out. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's another more racist. But this is where American imperialism kind of started with McKinley in the Philippines uh, and Taft yep. I think, was governor of the Philippines. And yep. this uh, progressivism is domesticated imperialism. They ran out of other countries to invade because that became taboo. And now you have to have New York City, L.A. and Washington basically invade and govern who they regard in America as their inferiors. Uh, and it's usually rural whites 
And it's also people who aren't following the progressive agenda. It, it's, it, and the thing is, it's become so transparent that it just you know, necessitates eye rolls. And, and they're just grasping at straws, especially, as you've seen, um, with, with the uh, election of Congresswoman Flores, who was the first Mexican-born congresswoman. Yeah. You know, the Hispanics yeah. are jumping off this train. They're like, what are you, what are you talking about? I know. I know. You don't mean Hispanics. You mean Latinx. Um, by the way, <laughs> by the way uh, I wanted to bring something up. These are the headlines from today. Lawsuit alleges CDC colluding with big tech to censor speech. Um, internal documents. Next story. Internal documents reveal CDC worked with big tech to censor COVID-19 speech. Next one. Twitter accounts suspended for COVID-19 misinformation have increased over 70 percent. They're not done yet. Twitter is now blocking links to some Substack pages uh, because of COVID, the CCP and Hunter Biden. And Wikipedia suspends edits to its recession page after woke users change the definition of Biden's. That's the only one that is right. Um, but I think there's a class action suit, isn't there? I mean, anyone who has been banned or been um, uh, silenced on the social media pages, that is government now. We know we have the evidence through documents. That is collusion, a public-private partnership. So that is the First Amendment. Companies can do it. But when working with the federal government, they cannot. I, I, I disagree, and we can go back to kind of Wilson again, because I think, in the, I, I mean, I think it's unacceptable and outrageous, don't get me wrong, but in terms of a lawsuit, I'm sure in their terms of service, they all say, we can boot you off at, at any time for any reason whatsoever. So to try to kind of demonstrate that you don't have a right to do this, I think it's going to be very hard to prove. I think Twitter can very easily claim, well, this was in consultation with the government, but we're the ones who made the decision. Um, and I think it, it, the, the heavy handedness, uh, you know, they would like us to memory hold this, but the heavy handedness with which they censored people, including the New York Post right before the election, Glenn, as you remember, yeah, oh, when yeah. they were reporting on Hunter's laptop and 50 intelligence agencies, agents, excuse me, who've had no accountability for lying because they said that they were, oh, all the symbols, classic symbols of Russian disinformation, which they still never said what those were. Uh, and there clearly weren't none because this was just a crackhead laptop. Um, I, I think the idea that the law is going to hold these agents, giant corporations accountable the law works in their favor. That's how our system has worked. I know. Well, but but I don't. My my lawsuit really is not against these uh, corporations as much as it is um, against the government, because the government is sp supposed to never get involved in that, and they have just found through public private partnerships. A way around the Constitution. They just get into bed with these corporations and then they highly suggest, you know, we can help you um, or not help you. Um, and they can highly suggest and really pressure these companies to do this. Um, or these companies might even be inclined to do it themselves. But the government has no place into being the arbiter of truth and speech. No place. But, but, Glenn, the governor, the First Amendment also guarantees the right of citizens to peaceably assemble. And if you try to do a lawsuit that's saying I wanted to go to my mother's funeral or visit her in the hospital 
and I was blocked yeah, because of these quarantines, you'd be laughed at to your face. So, yeah, it's supposed to work in a certain way. But in practice, I don't think these judges, even fairly conservative judges, are going to give this the time of day whatsoever. Um, uh, one other thing, let me uh, hit here before we, we have to go. Uh, Germany is cutting off hot water and electricity. I mean, this is something Donald Trump said just recently. Ronald Reagan said it years ago. Don't do it. Don't get in bed with Russia. They'll hold you hostage. And here they are. Um, what do you think this means for for stability in the future of our of our world? It's not just getting in bed with Russia. Germany has, in the very last election, gone from having a two-major-party system to having a three-major-party system. The Greens have achieved parity with the Social Democrats, which have historically, since World War II, been the center-left party in Germany. Um, and now that the Greens are in power, this is the kind of thing that happens when you want to have, you know, uh, not be dependent on things like gas and whatever, you're going to have problems producing electricity, you're going to have problems producing energy, and they're uh, cutting the water supply, they're having gas reductions, public buildings won't have heatings from April to September, they're banning, this is in uh, the city of uh, Hanover, they're banning air conditioners, heaters, and radiators for people in their homes, and, and, you know, this is what the German people voted for. So even if when things are resolved with Putin, and hopefully that's as quickly as possible, this is going to be continue to be a problem. And that, that Green New Deal, which is not going away, which is just on pause, people should be very concerned about what that's going to look like in practice here. Uh, you know, I was just watching this guy who is, uh, he's got the hydrogen house. He used to work for NASA, and he makes hydrogen from solar power. And I've been a big believer in hydrogen for a long time. Uh, it doesn't cause a water shortage. You have to make hydrogen from water. You actually get more water from hydrogen than you put into it, believe it or not. Um, and uh, it's 100% clean energy, and you can make it with solar energy. It is the answer. And I thought, you know, people could solve this problem if we were allowed to really, truly invent and do the things that we believe in. There'd be a lot of mistakes. But, you know, I, I was thinking, I, you know what, maybe I should call this guy and see if I can build a hydrogen, you know, uh, plant myself because uh, he's made it for his house and you can power everything. And I thought, well, no, because, you know, the government is eventually going to say that I'm committing some crime because of it, uh, because they'll deem hydrogen is whatever the problem is. And that's our real problem. Government is the problem. Uh, well, you're talking to an anarchist, so I could not agree with you. More. I know, I know. I, again, if carbon dioxide, they're trying to regulate that as a pollutant, which is something that every plant produces, um, it's. It, yeah. At a certain point, their use of language is simply a mechanism to have power and not they don't use language to uh, uh, inform. They use it to manipulate. So I agree with you completely. Like, there's no way that if you're trying to create an energy plant of any kind, you're not going to be subject to nightmarish regulations and possibly sure. felonies. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. And it's uh, I mean, it's the same story over and over and over again. 
and something's got to change. And I have a feeling with great pain will come great change, and hopefully it will be positive change if we all keep our heads. Michael, thank you so much for being on with us. It's uh, Michael Malice. He's the author of The Anarchist uh, Handbook and the host of You're Welcome. Did you have something else you wanted to say, Michael, or are you just disrupting because you're an anarchist? No, I, 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 you just said thank you, so I was going to say thank you. So uh, have a great weekend, everyone. Oh, well. <laughs> All right, have a good time. Thanks, Michael. The best of the Glenn Beck Program. It is a thrill. I've been looking forward to this for weeks now. Jack Carr, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? Oh, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate you having me on. It's been uh, been some oh, time since we last spoke. It is crazy what's going on, isn't it? <laughs> it is, both in the world and then uh, in uh, I guess in, on my journey here with the show and the, the books and everything else. It's gotten uh, it's gotten fairly yeah. busy. But I feel uh, incredibly fortunate. Yeah, well, you are, and you are. Uh, it's. I mean, it's your hard work and your storylines. Uh, when you when you got a call or did you pitch um, uh, Amazon Prime and and Chris Pratt signed on? How'd you feel? Yeah, so it, it came about in a strange way that I am told is not the typical Hollywood story. In uh, that I wrote it first, got it to Simon and Schuster, they loved it. We got a two book deal in place, and before the book even comes out, I get a call from a seal buddy who I hadn't spoken to in five years. And he calls me and he says, hey, do you remember me? And I said, yes, I remember you. And he said, do you remember what you did for me in the SEAL teams? And I said, nope. And he said, you were the only person that as I was getting out of the military, sat me down, talked me through transitioning into the private sector. You introduced me to people outside the military and then you followed up with me to see how I was doing. Nobody else did that. I always wanted to thank you. And I said, no problem. How's it going? And he said, well, it's going great, but uh, I heard you have a book coming out. And of course, I said, yep, it's coming out in a few months. I can send you an early galley copy if you'd like. And he said, I'd like that, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I asked him who that was. And he said, Chris Pratt. And I thought, wow, that's convenient because as I was writing this thing, I thought of Chris Pratt playing the main role. And I thought of that really this is before his rise to A-list prominence, before Guardians of the Galaxy, before Avengers, before Jurassic World, because I saw him as lovable Andy Dwyer on Parks and Rec. And then I saw this transformation yeah. into a SEAL operator for Zero Dark Thirty. So I saw that transformation, yeah. and I knew that he hadn't done anything like this yet before. And I thought, this is an actor that needs to take a risk and do something like this. And I think I had read somewhere that maybe he leans to the more patriotic side of things, which is a little different for uh, me yeah. in Hollywood. So I thought, this is the yeah. right guy to bring this story to life. And so my friend Jared Shaw, who also is now a producer on the show, technical advisor, and plays Boozer in the show, he gave it to Chris. Chris read it. Read it. He read it the last week in December of 2017, called the first week in January 2018, wanting to option it. So off we went to the races. He's a great guy, isn't he? He's a great guy. He is. He is. He's a normal guy, somebody you'd want to sit down and have a beer with, have a coffee with. Yeah. Uh, and he brought this energy to the set that was so encouraging uh, and so inspirational each and every day, bringing his A game, which really filtered across all 350 people working on that set. And I had so many people come up to me and say that they had been on hundreds of Hollywood sets and none of them had felt like this. And that's all due to Chris Pratt, that's and great. Juan Fuqua, the director up there at the top, being so encouraging and positive and just creating this environment that made everybody want to bring their A game every single day. So it was a, it was a thrill to see it brought to life. 
So let me ask you a question as a writer. James Reese, uh, the Chris Pratt character, finds himself in the middle of this conspiracy. Um, uh, and it, well, a lot of us would call it the deep, the deep state. Um, and it involves high members of the government, the DOD and private corporations, pharmaceutical companies. What gave you that idea in, I think you wrote this in 2018. So it was before the deep state was really talked about openly. Um, where did that come from? So it came out in 2018, but I started writing it in December of 2014. So um, uh, that's when I the paper for the first time. But uh, I'd always been drawn to conspiracies, thrillers my whole life. I've been a, a fan of the thriller genre, uh, also of movies and television yeah. shows that had that theme, that conspiratorial element, but also that underdog who the system is just stacked against, who rises up and crushes his enemies. Um, and I wanted a character, a modern day character who would go into battle thinking he was already dead. So he was free from societal norms and laws and he could just uncover this conspiracy and essentially become the insurgent that he'd been fighting for uh, the previous, if it came up now, 20 plus years, yeah. uh, and bring those home to the front doorsteps of people who have been sending young men, women to their deaths for, for 20 plus years. Uh, so, yeah. but I really got, I went back and I looked at the church hearings. I really looked at the end of World War II and the shift that occurred at the end of World War II. Um, and people should uh, go back and listen to Dwight Eisenhower's speech, not just the one line that everyone always talks about, but the entire speech. And then look at what was yes. happening in the defense establishment and the intelligence establishment. And then what what happened in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And then what was what was out during the church hearings in the mid-70s. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. what happened in it's, the church hearings, yes, a lot of abuses by the federal government were uh, exposed. But what do people like that do then? Well, they adapt. And so that adaptation has been occurring ever since the church hearings. Yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to really look into that and then create a character that could go and take those people off the battlefield. So um, I have read um, many uh, very, very wise people uh, from Washington or who watch Washington. And there is a problem with our intelligence community. They're, they're now starting to say it's almost a fourth branch of government. Um, and it silos everything and tells the leaders what they want them to know and silo different branches of the government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're running things. This is this is the conjecture that they're actually running things. Is it possible to rein these these intelligence agencies and the DOJ and, you know, State Department? Is it possible to reel them back in? That is the real question. And, uh, you know, they are gigantic bureaucracies with unelected officials that are in place that can just wait out uh, any politicians that get elected that do attempt to make changes. Uh, so they are such large bureaucracies. I am not sure. Uh, and that's that's the real question. And that's what I explore really in these novels as well. But what's, what's so sad, especially to the citizenry, is that these institutions have been so politicized um, that uh, it's to the detriment of us as the, as the voters, as citizens. And now you have institutions uh, that, uh, that benefit from our division. Um, mainly, I'm talking about, obviously, the political class and tech and mm -hmm. uh, the tech uh, oligarchy. And we're walking right into this ambush it's like an l ambush of uh politicians and this and this tech monopoly and in we walk here as citizens um and i'm not sure how you how we get out of that but uh they are the ones that directly benefit from 
this division. Uh, and that includes these institutions that fall under those political classes that have all been politicized, obviously. Um, so how do we get out of that? That's that's a question I like to explore in my novels. Uh, and uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I try to remain hopeful publicly. But at the end of the day, when I sit down with my yeah. wife on the couch and we talk about everything going on in the world, it's uh, sometimes difficult with everything going on out there. I know. I know. Um, so we're talking to Jack Carr, um, the uh, the author. Um, it, when we're looking at um, the world right now, I, I look at Ukraine and it just doesn't feel right. We're sending 60 billion dollars over there. Nobody's accounting for it. Um, uh, it's a very dirty country um, as far as corruption. Uh, our leaders really i think on both sides but mainly on the democrats but republicans are not entirely clean either um have been especially the the biden has been laundering money in my opinion and i think the evidence is pretty strong over in ukraine um and it feels like i don't know it just feels like the world wants this war to reset everything how do you feel about ukraine and where we're going yeah, so anytime I, I see anything these days uh, in the news or anything pop up on uh, online, uh, I ask myself, how, what, what action do they want me to take? And how am I being manipulated? Um, and that's maybe a cynical way to look at it, but with so many inputs out there today, so many more than were out there 30 years ago, obviously. 50 years ago, um, you have to ask yourself, how am I being manipulated? What action do these people want me to take? And then look at it through that lens. Um, In my second novel, True Believer, everything is speeding towards a Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, which is causing some issues Mm. with the second season of The Terminalist, if we get one, uh, because now we can't have that plot line because it actually happened. Um, But when you see that happening, you have to ask the why. uh, What lessons can we learn and apply going forward? Uh, Did we possibly make mistakes along the way here that helped uh, help make this happen, essentially? And then you can ask some other questions. Uh, Some of my sources out there are saying, uh, hey, we might want to look into investments that uh, Putin made through uh, relatives and uh, through uh, friendly oligarchs uh, in the days, weeks, months leading up to the invasion of Ukraine and what those same people have done and invested since uh, as far as shorting and futures and that sort of a thing. So it's, it's something that I'm looking Jeez. into because it's quite possible that uh, that Putin got even wealthier after the invasion of Ukraine. Oh, I'm sure he did. Uh, and having every, I'm sure he did. <laughs> and everything being so interconnected at those those high levels. Um, and we talk about those yeah. 50 intelligence officials that got on TV uh, last fall and uh, told us all uh, that uh, about Russian disinformation as it applied to the, yep. the Biden family. Uh, and those, those and what, what happened to those those 50? I think it was 50. Um, well, nothing. Yeah. It's accountability that we have nothing. totally lost. And that accountability, really, that loss of accountability goes back to the end of World War II, really 1947, um, uh, with the establishment of our intelligence agencies and the military industrial complex, as we understand it today. Um, but those were back in the beginnings there. But up until that point, senior military leaders were held to account for their failures. And for whatever reason, after World War II, that stopped happening. Uh, George Marshall held military leaders accountable for what they did uh, before World War II, during World War II. And that's how we got the names that we can all recite today of those generals and admirals that led us to victory. And uh, today we have the exact opposite. And what do we have now also? Well, a recruiting problem for the military. Why do we think that is? Well, because no one has trust in those senior military leaders that are going to be sending young men and women off 
to war. And uh, so we've lost that trust. That trust has been completely eroded. And that is because of the lack of accountability at those senior levels. Yeah, it's not that I mean, you know, it's not even that I don't trust this commander in chief to know what the best thing to do is along with the leadership. But it's also that they I mean, I don't trust that they're fighting uh, the right fights, that he will pick the right fights or fight the right fights in the right way and the righteous fights. Um, I mean, I just don't know what we stand for right now. And they're they're cleaning out the military and so many people are leaving because of the vaccines and then they're cleaning out the military, you know, doing a, a political purge. It's just a very dangerous time. It really is. I mean, we're so divided. Um, we've been divided before, which gives me hope because we did come back together after after the yeah. Civil war. So I do look at that case uh, to give me a little bit of hope. Um, but many cases were manipulated into that division by the very entities who directly benefit from it. Uh, those politicians and tech companies we talked about. Um, but uh, it's so bad that if one side and quote unquote side says that uh, we need to secure our borders, the other side has to take the opposite position of that because they can't possibly find any common ground with the other quote-unquote correct side uh we've lost all logic and common sense and uh interestingly enough that george marshall and carl von clausewitz both thought that common sense was the most important attribute of any leader and we have completely lost that across our uh politics and our, our discourse in this country unfortunately uh, we're talking to Jack Carr, the author of The Terminal List, which is a book. He's got a series out. Number six is coming out here uh, uh, soon and is also Amazon Prime's adaptation of the first book, The Terminal List, uh, played by Chris Pratt. Book and uh, series absolutely worth watching. Jack, thank you so much again for being on with us. I just uh, I, I really enjoy our talks. I really have been looking forward to this uh, conversation for a couple of weeks. Um, the, um, let me just ask you about Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan. We normally will send people over to countries like that and then announce the trip after we leave. So you don't put yourself in this situation again. I don't know if it's incompetence or what, but, uh, we've been, you know, announcing it, haven't even announced a date. And now China said in today's headline, it is, uh, those who play with fire get burned. And they are really threatening us. I don't think they have the capability at this time to go into Taiwan. But what do we do here? And how dangerous is this trip? Well, China has always believed that Taiwan is just a province of China. Um, so it all, a lot of this right. is back to us not being able to put ourselves in our enemy's shoes or our opponent's shoes or adversary's shoes and look at the world through their perspective and then make wise decisions based on that. We keep looking at things through this Western lens. We did it in Afghanistan. We did it in Iraq. We're doing it in, uh, in Ukraine, you know, no matter how uh, there's a few different other aspects to that as well. But we've done it to China for the last 50 years. Uh, and we can't seem to get away from that. We, we were very reactionary. Um, uh, and it's one of those, one of those places that we thought was just going to take care of itself. Um, and mm-hmm. that's obviously not happened. I mean, since the seventies, really that's been the policy. If you look all the way through the eighties, we just figure that the Taiwan China situation, uh, will just over time, things will settle down. Everyone will, uh, kind of join onto this new, this band of nations that realizes that, that capitalism and, uh, and, and, and free markets are the way ahead and all that sort of things. So we just let it simmer. And now we have a situation that 
could turn into to burning all of us. But it's really because we can't look at things through our enemy's eyes. And we think we look at things through a, a four year type of a, uh, a type yes. of eight years for the real deep thinkers among us, maybe um, where they're thinking not just decades, but they're thinking a century ahead and making moves that yeah. put them in a position of dominance uh, in the years ahead. But they're not thinking of those election cycles. Uh, one, because well, they don't yeah. have to, but uh, they're not short sighted. We are the short sighted ones. And we prove that time and time again to the detriment, really, yeah. not just of the United States, but of the world. And we've, we, this is totally changed. I mean, at least our enemies were our enemies for a long time. We understood that. And, uh, and, uh, and we're still kind of moving in the same direction. Now we're just flip-flopping around every four years. It's ridiculous. Jack, I'm sorry I'm out of time. Is there going to be a second season terminal list? That's the real question. And uh, you'll be one of the first to know Gotta if be. I get word. Uh, all right i'm gonna hold you to that all right good thank you so much uh it has a score of 95 on rotten tomatoes the critics hate it 39 percent, but that to me is just an endorsement to make sure you're watching it on amazon prime 